the note, uh, there was a note in, in one study Bible that I looked at that stated that Ecclesiastes chapter six is probably one of the darkest chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, but I'm hopeful that if that's the case, that in the darkness we'll be able to see the light of the world. Let's give careful attention to this now because this is the very word of God. Ecclesiastes chapter six. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? That is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless his word to us. Father in heaven, thank you for the holy scriptures. Thank you for this chapter of your word. And as we consider it together, O oh Lord, let us consider what the text says. Let us consider what you are saying to us through it. But let us also consider uh, where you're pointing us through these words, and we pray that uh, Christ would be exalted and that we might see him. We ask this in his name, amen. <clears throat> uh, early on in the 2002 cinematic version of Tolkien's The Two Towers, Bilbo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee are trying to make their way to Mordor, where they hope to take that evil ring of power and destroy it. But the way is difficult, and they aren't making much progress. And in time, to their great uh, discouragement, they come to realize that they have, for quite some time, just been traveling in circles. They haven't gotten any closer to their goal. They realize that what they're doing isn't working. They realize it isn't getting them where they need to go. Solomon makes a discovery somewhat similar to that in, in his 
discourses in Ecclesiastes, uh, we come to a similar point, that, that just going in circles point that, that uh, Frodo, excuse me, I said Bilbo, didn't I? Frodo and, Frodo and Sam come to. Actually, it's not that Solomon comes to that realization, it's just that he's been studying life under the sun and he's reported his observations and he proves that the sort of futility in which mankind's pursuits get him if he lives life apart from faith in God is just a reality of life. He sees that going around in circles. Life apart from faith in God, which inescapably means faith in Christ. Apart from that, life gets nowhere. We're just going around in circles. Making no real progress. So I could have titled the sermon Going Around in Circles, but I chose the title Dead End because there are several references in the text to death, to the end. I chose the title Dead End because that's what life really is without Christ. A person can try one path or another, one after the other, but every single one is eventually a dead end, both in the figurative sense and quite literally. The chapter makes several references to death. We see in verse 3 there's this reference to having no burial, and then you have that very sorrowful comparison to the stillborn child. Verse 6 asks, do not all go to the one place, which of course is a reference to the grave. So by these reflections on death, Solomon is forcing people to give thought to what lies ahead and to consider what all their toil and all their activities are going to get for them in the end. In the opening verses of the next chapter, uh, that matter is going to be very explicitly addressed. It's spelled out for us there. It's handed to us on a silver platter that death is the end of all mankind, and therefore we ought to uh, lay that to heart while we're still living. We find in chapter 6, in some respects, a summary review, we're going back and reviewing course content in a certain sense from everything that's been presented to us in Ecclesiastes thus far. The vanity of wealth, the lack of any true satisfaction, nothing new under the sun, the uncertainty of life, the unknowable future. And reflecting back on all of it, Solomon arrives at a conclusion. And his conclusion here that he's presenting is, if a person is toiling in pursuit of things under the sun, he gains nothing. And that's a conclusion that would lead to despair, except that what Solomon's trying to do is direct our attention and our devotion elsewhere, away from things under the sun. He's pointing us to something, or, or better, to someone that isn't under the sun. To put it in the clearest terms I can put it, the only source of abiding hope and true satisfaction is having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. Let me say that again. The only source of abiding hope 
and true satisfaction is having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, and that's essentially Solomon's message, put in New Testament terms, of course. But the first point, and it's just a two-point sermon, I think the outline is in your bulletin, but the first point we're going to consider is the heavy weight. Notice how the chapter begins. There's an evil I've seen under the sun, he says, and he says it lies heavy on mankind. Now the word evil in this context and the way it's being used here isn't a reference to moral evil or sin exactly. It's, it's more a reference to what we might generally refer to as misfortune or tragedy, bad things that happen uh, in life. And Solomon says that this evil, this bad thing is, is weighty. It's a tremendous burden to man. Now, you might be looking at a different version than the ESV, and if you are, it's possible that your version says not that the evil lies heavily on mankind, but that it's prevalent among mankind or that it's common. And that's because the, uh, the Hebrew word there, the Hebrew word uh, just basically means much. It means great. And so we can take that word in the sense of intensity, heaviness, or we can... Uh, we can think of it in terms of extent, prevalence. Or it might even be that the Hebrew word, which I think it is capable of doing, captures both senses, both ideas at once. But whatever the case, this is, this is not an evil that Solomon hasn't already dealt with or spoken about in Ecclesiastes. What he's doing, he's taking us back to reconsider the various case studies that have already been brought to us by the preacher, the man who toils to obtain riches and possessions, but he never gets any pleasure from them, the man who loves money, but he's never satisfied with money, the man who amasses a tremendous estate, but then he has to leave it to someone else, The person we're looking at here in chapter 6 has everything a man could possibly want. He's got money to burn, and he's got all the stuff life has to offer, and he's even highly regarded by others. He's held in honor, but he gets no enjoyment from any of it. His pursuits and his attainment of life's goods He said, it feels like an elephant is standing on my chest. Think of that suffocating feeling, one that you can't get out from under. That's what it's like to live under the sun if you're trying to attain satisfaction and fulfillment in things under the sun. There's more hope, there's no more hope, I should say, no more hope of finding fulfillment in things under the sun than that poor boy having the asthma attack has hope of breathing freely. There are two portraits held up to our view in this chapter. One is of a man who has or maybe had all that he desires, but for some reason he's not able to enjoy it. The specifics aren't given for us in the text. The exact problem isn't laid out for us. Maybe this man's goods are lost in a bad venture like we read about happening to someone back in chapter five or maybe they're taken from him by force. But somehow or another, someone else is enjoying all of his wealth and possessions. 
The second man that we see in verses 3 through 6 is also prosperous. He's got many children. He lives a long life. And nothing's said in the text about him losing his stuff. But he may as well have lost them. Because it says his soul is not satisfied. In God's providence, a person who's been blessed with abundance might be able to hold on to his blessings, or he might not. The grievous evil that Solomon is lamenting here is that whether he can hold on to his things or whether he loses them, he can, he can still go throughout life unfulfilled, empty in soul. And the sense of despair conveyed by these verses is summed up by the mention of the stillborn child. The preacher says that stillborn child is better off than these men that he's just described. Why is that? Because all go to one place, as verse 6 says. But the stillborn child just gets there without all the sorrow and frustration. I realize that that's an unpleasant analogy. It's an unpleasant topic. The very idea of a stillborn child. Perhaps some of you have experienced a tragedy like that. But the Holy Spirit chose that illustration, breathed it out through Solomon. He chose it because of the very tragic nature of it. I remember reading somewhere some time ago that sometimes a cat will play with a mouse that it has captured. It'll taunt the mouse. It'll terrorize it instead of just killing it immediately. Apparently, in some cases, cats can be rather sadistic in that way. They take a measure of delight <coughs> in the panic of their poor victims. And you could say, if the, if the intent is to kill the mouse and eat it, why not just do it? as opposed to deriving entertainment from the victim's fear. But that's kind of what this passage is getting at. Why not just hurry up the process? All people are going to the grave. And if this life is all there is, and if a person can't derive enjoyment or satisfaction from it, it's better just to skip to the end, as they say. Why not? Well, let me be quick to say that this is the word of God and that is not the message that's ultimately being sent in these verses. That's not what God in his word is advocating. Neither this chapter <clears throat> nor any part of God's word advocates or encourages suicide or abortion or the hastening of death by any means. And that's because God gives us good things so that we can enjoy them. And it's because this life is not all there is. We'll come to the better answer soon enough, but for the moment, observe that Solomon is exposing and demolishing the existentialist worldview here. He's making an argument here in this chapter that's very similar to the one that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. Both Solomon and Paul are arguing against the bankrupt philosophical notion that this world is all there is. Paul reasoned, if you remember, that if, hypothetically, if there is no resurrection, we may as well all just say, 
let us eat and drink, tomorrow we die. But of course, you know and Paul knew that there is a resurrection. The dead are raised, and therefore our hope should be fixed on the hereafter. One thousand years before Paul, Solomon made the same case. He said, if what's under the sun is all there is, why not just die now? But what's under the sun is not all there is. Life has meaning that reaches beyond the one place that all go. Life under the sun has been Solomon's study. That's what he's been examining throughout Ecclesiastes. And his conclusion is that it's all vanity. He's seen everything. He's tried everything. And it's gotten him nowhere It's taken him around in circles. It's led him to one dead end after another. So here we are halfway through Ecclesiastes and we find ourselves at an impasse. We also find ourselves now at the second point. I called it Eaton's impasse. And so I owe you an explanation why I called it that. Eaton's impasse. As I wrestled with this chapter, and I I really did wrestle with it, I consulted several commentaries just to try to get an idea of how different scholars have broken down the content of the chapter. And I found in one commentary an outline that I thought was helpful, so I wrote it down. And then as I was skimming through another commentary sometime later, I discovered the exact same outline. I thought, hmm. Well, then it turned, realized, of course, that the, the same commentator provided the content for both commentaries, and that does happen from time to time. So in this case, the contributor who wrote the the comments on Ecclesiastes in the the New Bible Commentary, it's a one-volume commentary on the whole Bible, also happened to be the author of the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary on Ecclesiastes. His name is Michael Eaton, and he summarized the final verses of Ecclesiastes 6 by referring to them as an impasse. And that made a lot of sense to me, so that's what I'm calling it too, but I wanted to credit him, so I called it Eaton's impasse. So, returning to this impasse that we have at the end of chapter 6, man-made solutions to the issues of life are never long-term enduring solutions. Man-made solutions to life's issues are, at best, band-aids covering up deadly wounds. I made uh, reference uh, earlier to asthma attacks, and uh, our older son had asthma as a child. And on one very frightening occasion, he he was having an asthma attack that we weren't able to control. We had medication at home, we even had a nebulizer, but nothing we were doing on our own was helping him at all. And he had to go to the hospital, and we took him there, because there, there were people with expertise and with resources that were beyond our own, and they could treat him, and they did. Thanks be to God. But we had to reach outside of ourselves. We had to look beyond our own resources. And in the same way, mankind's efforts to find meaning and to find fulfillment in life are, well, just to use Solomon's word, 
vanity. They're futile. Remember the observation Solomon made back in chapter 1 when he said, uh, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Now, that wasn't just some ancient person's pre-scientific opinion about the water cycle. He was making an illustration about the futility of man's efforts to find satisfaction. And it's expressed for us here in chapter 6 in verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite isn't satisfied. All the rivers flow to the sea, but it's never full. It's as if it's never satisfied. But it's a picture of us. Also in chapter 1, he said, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Meaning, better to enjoy and give thanks for what's right in front of you than to be continually yearning for something far off. Can you imagine trying to walk around or maybe even ride a bicycle while looking through binoculars? Sounds like a recipe for a bad accident to me. You can be walking along or riding along, looking far away, seeing what you can find, but you don't see the curb that's in front of you, or maybe the light pole or the fire hydrant that you're about to run into. See, the discontent person is always looking for something else, always looking out there, never satisfied with what's right in front of him, what he has in the sight of his eyes, his portion, as Scripture might put it. And Who ordained our portion? Who has assigned us our lot? It's God. And he's the one that the text speaks of. He's the one who's stronger than we are. And we aren't able to dispute with him. And yet, people do try, of course. Now, granted, there is a God-honoring biblical manner in which we can and should endeavor to improve our outward estate. In fact, that's one way in which we keep God's commandments, by seeking lawfully to do that. But there's no guarantee that our labors will produce the increase we desire. Outcomes are all in the Lord's hands. He gives, He takes away, and we are not able to contend with him. Well, throughout this text, Solomon asks various questions. And I think to help us get a grip on this chapter, the best way for us to understand the purpose of these questions that he asks is to take them as leading questions. They're posed in order to instruct us. In other words, these are not unanswered questions that the preacher is puzzling over himself. They're questions he's prompting you and me to ask. And they're questions that have answers. He asks, what advantage has the wise man over the fool? That's a review question. For you who've been involved in education, you ask review questions. Solomon's asking one right here. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? Well, he's answered that for us several times over. And now he's doing a check on learning. 
The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, says Ecclesiastes 2.14. Wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness, says in the verse before that. He also asks, what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Solomon's answer to that question is, he has much. That's what we were told back in chapter 4, verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. And in the final verse of our chapter, there are two questions. The first is, who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Solomon has made the assertion several times that under the sun, it is good to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in your toil. But notice the way here especially, he lays stress on the fact that our days are few and our lives are vain in the sense that they're a vapor, they're temporary, they're fleeting. And he's directing our gaze elsewhere. As the second question makes clear, the second question, the last, last thing in chapter 6 is, who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, all go to one place, and then what? This is where the preacher, Solomon, is driving us. Why is this chapter dark? What makes it dark? Why does it seem dark to us? It's because Solomon is intentionally pushing us to the edge of a cliff, to an impasse, to a dead end. And like Israel, when the army of Egypt was behind them and before them was this barrier of the Red Sea, you and I have nowhere else to look except up. We have no recourse but to cry out to God. This is Eaton's impasse. The preacher has slammed every door shut except the door of faith. Now, it would be fair, knowing, of course, that Solomon was an Old Testament figure. Could he really have been doing that? Uh, what did he know about the hereafter? What could Solomon have understood about eternal life? Well, he must certainly have known his own father's psalms, don't you think? And so he would have been able to say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He could say, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Solomon and all the faithful children of Israel in his day must have known the ancient words of Job who said, for I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand at last upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
From the days of Adam, God's people have known that a Redeemer was coming. They have known that there would be an age to come, an age that transcends this life under the sun. And Solomon, the teacher, the preacher, his lesson plan is to point us to that age to come and to call us to faith in that Redeemer. He didn't know that Redeemer's name, but you do. What is his name? His name is Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name is Yehoshua, or Joshua, or in the Greek New Testament, Jesus. And the only source of abiding hope and true satisfaction is having a relationship with him by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that in the darkness of this chapter there is hope. If we look up, may our hearts and our faith look up to you, we pray. And uh, we pray that you do that gracious work in many, even this very day. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.